This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the African American Studies channel at the New Books Network. My name is Brittany Michelle Edmonds, and I'm very excited to be here with my guest today, Dr. Elizabeth McHenry, who will talk about her newest book, To Make Negro Literature, Writing, Literary Practice, and African American Authorship. Dr. McHenry is a professor of English at New York University and author of Forgotten Readers, Recovering the Lost History of African-American Literary Societies. Thank you for being here today, Dr. McHenry. Thank you for having me. So I wanted to get started by just hearing a bit about the book and also, you know, the process for coming to the topic. You know, how did you get interested in writing your book? Are there links between this book and your first book? Or do you feel like you were starting something entirely new with this project? Um, That's a good question. Um, And it's so funny just having finished a book to go back the what for me was a long, long way to figure out, you know, where did it come from and how did it come about? Um, so when I was finishing up or when I was writing uh, Forgotten Readers, one of the most satisfying um, archives that I worked with for that project was Mary Church Terrell's papers at the Library of Congress. And um, I loved working with those papers. In some ways, those were, uh, uh, Terrell's papers were my one of my first deep dives into the archives. And um, I think I learned, I mean, I certainly learned a lot about um, Terrell and uh, the Black Women's Club movement. Um, but I also learned a tremendous amount from those archive from those archives about archival research itself. Um, and one of the things I was most fascinated by um, was the fact that Terrell's archives were full of short stories. Um, and uh, at the time, I mean, I knew uh, Terrell was a activist and a lecturer and that she'd written a tremendous amount that appears in the African-American press. And um, and in, in fact, her activism um, lasted, you know, well into her late age. Um, but I didn't think of her, nor had I ever read, nor had I ever thought of her as a short story writer. And so for some reason, those stories really lingered on with me. And I think part of that was because they were all unpublished. Um, and the other part of it was that the, her 
archives also included a huge number of letters to editors uh, that were essentially what we write as cover letters. They introduced the work and um, they asked, you know, uh, please consider this for publication. Um, and and along with those were was a huge trove of rejection letters that she had also saved meticulously um, that uh, more or less repeated the same um, message, which was that her short stories were not going to be published. Um, and those were for, from a very different set of journals than the ones that she actually was published in. Um, they were from the, 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 the leading um, literary journals um, rather than the African-American press where, in fact, she had um, focused her work um, or the bulk of her writing. And so um, in some ways I felt like, you know, there was some story there that I kept kind of revolving around and returning to. And um, so very early I wrote an article um, that appeared in American Literary History um, that was on Terrell's work. And it was really, you know, it, it was when I talked about her work as failure. Um, and I, and I was really talking about the sort of disjunction between, um, uh, what we think of when we think of Terrell, which is incredible success and what she thought of her own literary accomplishments. And what she said was that she had failed as a short story writer. Um, and so in some ways that whole notion of literary failure really haunted me, um, and stayed with me, um, even beyond when I wrote the article. Um, and it also, um, made me really curious about this particular moment in African-American literary history. And that is the years, um, that surround the turn from the 19th to the 20th century. Um, and I played with that time frame. I mean, I first thought I was writing a book that was really on the years from 1900 to 1910. And, you know, then I thought it was the years, you know, maybe before the Harlem Renaissance, so a wider, slightly wider time frame. And then I thought, well, maybe it was before World War One. But really, what never left was this interest in um, what I originally thought of was a time period when there, when, when what we see what is widely recognized is a very, very small handful of black writers. And so, um, you know, initially I thought, well, you know, we think of that as a period of Paul Lawrence Dunbar writing poetry, though, of course, he died very early in the 20th century. We think of it as this moment that is associated with Charles Chestnut. Um, and though, of course, uh, he published, you know, with a major publisher, but it was an experiment that for the most part, also failed um, in that um, they published a couple books by him, but then they 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 would not publish his later books, and um, he had to return from uh, authorship as a professional occupation to his job as a stenographer. Um, and we think of it, you know, and to some extent, um, with someone like James Weldon Johnson, though um, James Weldon Johnson's um, book. Uh, uh, the autobiography of an ex-colored man, um, which he published in 1912, really we associate more clearly with its rediscovery during the Harlem Renaissance. So there were all these like intriguing things about this period. Um, and this was way back in like 2003, quite honestly, um, after I'd published my first book. And so, um, you know, in the, in the intervening years, I feel like we know a lot more about, um, about, you know, certain authors, um, from that period. Um, 
And, but generally speaking, I think it's still one of those periods that is sort of understudied um, in African-American literary history. Um, and it's associated more clearly with like larger time frames. Like we've thought of it as, um, you know, part of a quote unquote new Negro Renaissance that, that essentially culminates in the Harlem Renaissance. Um, and that's one, you know, sort of grouping. Um, and we've also thought about it in terms of a sort of pre- um, a pre, a post-bellum, pre-Harlem time period, which might begin in 1877 with the end of Reconstruction. And that's also a sort of longer time period um, that I think doesn't do justice to these particular constellation of, um, of questions and, um, and efforts that were really part of a, a, a tighter time frame. No, that's really great. You know, your question touched on so many things that I eventually want to talk about. Um, you know, I was really struck, you know, I'm not a 19th century literary scholar. And so I was struck by your framing of this period. And I had never noticed the ways in which, yeah, whole swaths of years are just sort of grouped um, and what's sort of lost by that. And so where I want to go next before we start talking about things like literary failure, about Terrell, who it's interesting that she was the sort of seed for the book because she shows up at the end of, of this volume. Um, I also want to talk about A.A. Lit as a cultural formation, which you're thinking about not quite as African-American literature. We're going to talk about your title a bit. Um, but I'm really curious about what you have to say about established literary history. Like in your introduction, you say that you're really interested in this area that literary scholars kind of don't know, a set of concerns that literary scholars haven't really explored, and you largely attribute it to scholarly neglect. And so I'm curious about what that means for you, about the methodology you employ to uncover some of the stories that you uncover in this volume. And also, you know, what I was also struck by were the different sort of literary publics that you're sort of making visible to literary scholars, right? Your whole first half of the book is thinking about people who are semi-literate, who have aspirations to becoming literate, or maybe even people who have aspirations to something that you call sort of literariness. And so I'm just, I'm curious if you could talk a bit about methodology um, with respect to sort of established literary histories and some of the work you're doing in this volume. Yeah, I mean, I think that in in some sense, um, what I came to understand more clearly, what I sort of was grappling with, was the way that um, we we tend we literary scholars tend to focus on um, um, on the most visible moments, um, and and by visible, I mean those moments where there are many, many, many published authors, where um, where there are sort of fascinating. Um, uh, visible, highly visible um, things, movements going on, um, and and uh, and the the other thing I think we have focused on in maybe the last um, couple decades is this idea of, for instance, the long nineteenth century. Um, I don't think we've focused yet on a long twentieth century, but the long nineteenth century, and um, and of course that has been tremendously useful in in many respects. But I think that um, what 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 has ten, what tends to happen is, um, and this is particularly true, I would argue in, in African-American literary history of the Harlem Renaissance, is that those particularly visible moments make it harder for us to see those less visible moments and make it harder for us to see um, the ways that we uh, then in part because of the visibility of certain moments um, are less um are, are, are less critical, I think, about what we 
think of when we think of a successful literary movement or even, you know, what constitutes literary history. So my, uh, my argument in the book really is that I, that, um, that if we only take into consideration um, as components of literary history, those most visible and most prominent authors or movements or time periods, then we, we don't do justice to certainly what makes up a literary history, which um, in many respects um, depends upon that which um, doesn't become visible or remain visible um, as it does on those movements that for whatever reason um, do remain visible. Um, and I think that uh, for me, the, the the beginning of the 20th century or the the very end of the, tw- the 19th century is very much that kind of um, movement, a movement that is not, it, it, that had uh, um, incredibly important aspects to it, um, that had incredibly important writing and practitioners and literary, what I came to call literary attempts. Um, but many of those um, we can't really see anymore because they they didn't result in the kinds of things that we associate with uh, literary history or that, that make for the most recognizable forms of literary history. So one of those is obviously publication. Um, and um, and uh, publication obviously, you know, is, is hugely important in part because it, re- it results in texts that last, um, efforts that are visible in part because they they resulted in um, in projects that were put between boards, which we know um, is one way that um, one one thing that preserves texts. I mean, literally, quite honestly, and quite literally, makes them um, uh, um, last longer. So, um, so for, for instance, um, you know. Uh, Books are collected in libraries. Things that are, are unpublished usually are thrown out. And I think we're, we're really fortunate in the case of Mary Church Terrell, for instance, um, because she saved um, what she wrote. She purposefully sort of created this archive of her failure, right, of things she, that didn't work. Um, so, so, what I, so part of what I'm interested in in this book is expanding um, what I call the map by which we know literary history, um, and and thinking back through not only what was published, um, or um, or what um, looks like what we think of as literary history, um, but also those uh, elements of literary history that we don't widely recognize or um, or appreciate uh, from literary history, and I and I and I. I do um, suggest that scholarly neglect is part of the reason why, for instance, we don't know um, the the literary moment in which I investigate in this book. Um, in, and, and part of that, like, for instance, you pointed to the first chapter. I mean, one of the things I pointed to in the first chapter is these books that are everywhere. I mean, they appeared everywhere. Um, they're still pretty easily found, but, um, but they've been largely dismissed because they don't look like the kind of, uh, literature that we think of or call or recognize as literature. Um, they look like something that is mm, kind of boring and, um, kind of, um, uh, uh, I mean, uh, specifically um, that borrows from other earlier texts. So 
kind of looks unoriginal, kind of looks uncreative. And all those things are true. And yet uh, the the texts themselves really mark uh, an important, um, not only sort of moment in literary history, but an important form of literature um, that helps us to recognize different kinds of readers and um, and different constellations of of literary history. Yeah. So my, my question following that, you know, I feel like it almost answers itself, but I want to ask it anyway, is, you know, you're uncovering all of these sort of books, um, these sort of failed literary attempts by sort of figures that we think we know. Um, I'm curious how much of that has to deal with uh, the particularity of the historical period that you're studying around the 20th century and the, just the sort of the tension between uh, sort of black civic possibility and sort of black literary possibility that emerges after, you know, kind of the dash dreams of, of, of reconstruction, right? Because you kind of keep gesturing towards that throughout throughout the book. And so I'm curious, do these sort of failed attempts matter more because of that historical backdrop? Or is, or is this concern with these kinds of failed attempts, do we think there are other historical moments that would benefit from this kind of literary attention? So I think that's a great question, and I, and I would answer it in, in two ways. First, I would say, yes, these literary attempts matter more, in part because they are against the backdrop of, for instance, Plessy versus Ferguson, and even, uh, you know, which is, of course, a legal, uh, it, it is a legal um a legal case that only confirms what is already going, which what is already evident, um, which is uh, you know the racial violence, which is seen in the racial violence, which is seen in the the escalation of um, of, of really racial ha- uh, uh, hatred and um, and the disregard. I mean, for black bodies certainly, but um, but for for you know black life that is seen around the turn of the century. Um, and I think that for me, you know, because um, one of the things that signified is, um, is the, uh, the, the, the dashing of political hopes and the frustration of the kind of efforts that might've come out of, you know, the end of the civil war, um, that, uh, that literary practitioners were really, and, and actually all, you know, black leadership was really looking for all sorts of like of different avenues that they might take towards um towards you know what we would call civil rights um and towards um the recognition of the importance of you know black lives um and and black livelihood um so i do think that that this is a particular moment i would also though say that in fact there are all sorts of moments that are unrecognizable for their, uh, uh, like, um, not even literary importance, but for the texture of their literary history um, that I think could really benefit for a more granular approach. Um, And uh, it's so funny because when I was deciding, when I decided to go towards this particular project, because I am trained as a 19th century African-Americanist, I was debating between two time periods that I was sort of curious about. And I am not exactly sure why I thought of this next project as one about time periods. But I think um, in part because my first book covered a tremendous 
a, a huge, um, you know, over a century of, of um, black literature. Um, I was actually interested in doing something that was much more like tightly focused. But the other period I was really concerned with, or I was thinking about, and still sort of haunts me and seems worthy of uh, reinvestigation, is that period between the Civil War and 1877. Basically, that period before the end of Reconstruction, um, which for me um, it, it has, it has actually been investigated in really profitable ways in terms of looking at um, uh, newspapers like the Christian Recorder, for instance, um, and and actually I think newspapers are are the key are one key to um, looking at the literary. Um, history of this particular moment. But I, but the point is, I think there, there are many other periods that we might think of as approaching in a really tight and sort of, um, again, granular way um, to get more clearly and more firmly, not in an attempt to, to, to argue for either a different sort of periodization for African-American literature or for the importance, you know, of uh, or, or even to to make that period um, like in competition with something like the Harlem Renaissance, but simply to to have a a better grasp of 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 what our literary history really looks like, um, uh, what what has what what has been part of its history, um, and I think it helps us to answer in different ways. Um, all sorts of other questions that we have about African-American literature. For instance, who was its readership? Um, you know, how, how, um, how, how were its texts, you know, distributed and, um, and consumed to some, um, some degree? Um, and, um, you know, what was the nature of African-American authorships at different moments, um, you know, throughout the 19th and 20th century? Yeah, no, that's great. You know, um, I really love, you know, going back to that that line you said earlier about expanding the map by which we know literary history and thinking about your project as not sort of being one of, com- of, of you know, sort of competing periodizations. Um, but I'm still curious about the title of your, of your book. And you, and you talk about it a bit in the introduction, but to make Negro literature, it seems to invite a kind of scrutiny, right? Because it's Negro literature, not African-American literature. And obvious, as you say, you know, in your introduction, it's a callback to Kenneth Warren's polemic. And so I'm curious about maybe not competing periodization, but like what is the relationship um, of this period, of the kinds of moments that you are um, drawing out? What is the relationship between that and you know, what we already know, maybe like a conventional literary history, right? These authors, these writers, these kinds of books, these forms of literary failure, these literary attempts, what relation do they do they bear to, um, you know, the Harlem Renaissance, for example? Yeah, so um, I, 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 it's, it's funny because I've always thought of this book as having, as being really tightly focused on you know, this moment that was um, charged by, um, by this name, by, by this moniker Negro. Um, And, um, and so it's, it's actually interesting. It's been interesting to hear um, people ask about um, the name and I don't feel like people have questioned it. Um, uh, And I hope people aren't offended by it. 
but I think it's been really important. I, 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 my, my feeling has always been that it's been really important to, um, to in some way recognize the particularity of this moment, um, in, in terms of the ways that the term Negro was claimed, um, by black people and by, um, by, by, uh, by literary scholars, literary, um, by intellectuals, by black intellectuals, really. Um, and, um, and the way that for them, it spoke to, um, uh, you know, a new moment, a new, a new attempt, a new identity. Um, and of course that, that, terrain has been covered by Henry Louis Gates and by um, my former colleague, Jean Jarrett, um, in really fruitful ways. Um, but what I really want to get at in this book is, um, is not a, a movement or a moment, but really, um, you know, what it meant to be sort of forging this new path to claiming this new name in terms of the making of, of literature. Um, and, uh, for me, that's like, that's a, that is a specific, uh, in some ways it's a specific tale to be told. Um, and for me, it is told not through the published literature, um, not through, for instance, the story of Paul Lawrence Dunbar and Charles Chestnut, though I do think those stories are central also to, this particular moment, but really through these stories that, um, that haven't come to light, that, that don't come to light. If you're looking at, um, at, at black literature, um, in, to, in some respects, traditional ways. Um, and so, so that word, that word is loaded. I mean, it's loaded for me. Um, and I think it is in part loaded because, um, uh, because Ken Warren, in some ways, specifically um, avoids using that word. He, uh, when I say avoids, he doesn't avoid using it. He 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 says, "I could have used that word, but I didn't." Um, and I think um, my using of that word, um, you know, specifically signals, uh, you know, my interest in. Um, really getting at the texture of this particular moment, not making a larger argument about um, the, the periodicity about African-American literature, or even um, making a claim to when African-American literature begins and ends. Um, And certainly um, what I'm not arguing is that before this moment, there was nothing called either Negro literature or African-American literature, but, but my interest is really getting at this particular moment. Um, and I think one way of doing so is to acknowledge the ways that partic- that literary practitioners use this term deliberately, meaningfully, um, and in an attempt to do something that they considered different, not different in terms of creating some, uh, a literature that was not there before, but different in terms of, um, of, of trying to make this literature speak in a, in a sort of a new and different way. And I think that new and different way had everything to do with the, with, you know, their frustrations with, for instance, political attempts. Um, but, um, uh, and, and, and I, and again, I don't, I don't see it as, uh, you know, my, my, my job is not to pull this literature out and, um, and make it something that, that, 
is distinct from what came before and what came after, but to recognize again, you know, the, something that was, um, was, was I, what I think was a, an attempt to really ground this literature, um, in a way that would see it forward, um, you know, uh, both, um, from as growing out of the 19th century, but also moving forward into the 20th century. You asked me another part, but I but I can't remember what it was. I mean, but what you just said is a is a really beautiful answer. I think the second part I was just kind of curious about about thinking about this moment in relationship to to what follows. The Harlem Renaissance, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, um, specifically yeah. thinking about readership, specifically thinking about the institutional forms that African American literature as a cultural formation takes up. Mm-hmm. I mean. Related to that question is where I was going to pivot in our next question, so it might be another two-parter. Um, but I was really curious, you know, reading across your book, I was really curious about this question of, I guess, like institutionalization and thinking about the great deal of organization that it took to reach certain kinds of readers. Um, if we're thinking about the sort of book agents that you describe in the first chapter, or if we're thinking about the sort of newspapers that had the sort of letters printed in them and then had, uh, you know, folks going to different sections to learn different things. And so I'm, I was curious about about it on that hand, right? The high level of sort of organization and strategy that it took to reach a kind of aspiring black literate public. And also the ways in which, you know, so many of these sort of black figures, these black actors in the sort of, who are, who are interested in promit, promoting black literacy were kind of disbarred from institutions or sort of um, subordinated or dismissed in certain ways. And I'm thinking here sort of most prominently about Murray, um, who you talk about for quite quite a bit. And so this question of institutionality and, and just, yeah, you know, how this moment becomes what comes after it and, and the relationship between them was something that I was thinking about the entire time I was reading. Yeah. So, I mean, my own sense is that this moment is, is one reason why this moment is so important is because it does lay the groundwork for what comes later. And I think probably more importantly, the writers are conscious of laying the groundwork for what comes later, right? This is not an unconscious, um, uh, moment. And, and, and this doesn't, you know, this, this has, this is something that takes place throughout the history of black literature, um, is that the groundwork is part of the objective of the literature itself. And you can see that as far back as, I mean, even earlier, but, um, David Walker talks about, you know, how, how essential it is to build a readership and to share literacy. Um, and throughout the 19th century, we have other examples of, of, of these kinds of sort of infrastructural um, gestures. Um, but I think they become particularly important, uh, visible at this moment. Um, and I think that has to do not only with what's going on sort of in, in this, the, in black intellectual circles, but also what's going on um, in the world of education in the U S um, and throughout the world. I mean, you have to remember that this, at this moment in the United States is when, uh, all sorts of things are taking place. One is the um, professional organizations and the professionalization of things like library studies. And um, and the other thing that was new to me was the professionalization of literally bibliography as a field of study. Um, and so when Murray, for instance, um, takes it upon himself um, and is charged with 
uh, creating these bibliographies of black literature, he's not doing that in a vacuum. Um, though, and and he's also, you know, uh, he's not formally trained as a librarian, but he's certainly um, a part of that world of the Library of Congress. Um, and so his work to organize books is also part of a larger um, effort to organize the discipline of, of, of literary study, um, what we would now call sort of English more broadly, um, and, to, um, and to establish what is American literature? Um, you know, what, what does it look like? What are its parameters? What counts? What doesn't count? Um, how will we be known um, you know, by our literature. Um, and, uh, and what one thing that Murray did, of course, which was so exceptional was he insisted that black literature, um, be part of this, um, not only by making his, uh, bibliographies and in fact, continuing to his bibliographical work throughout his life time, but also by insisting, um, in his correspondence, in the way that he made his lists public, um, that, uh, any list of American literature should also include lists of Negro literature. Um, and so I, I do think that this, this period was one of organization, um, even in the way that um, in my first chapter, I looked at these books that, you know, that, that, it is possible we're sold to people who did not have the ability to read. And, um, and one of the things that those authors do um, the authors of those books do, is that they organize uh, previously published uh, bodies of, of, of writing into groupings that are more easily, easily digested, more easily consumed by readers who might not have had the stamina, the literary ability to read longer pieces. So I do think that this, this, um, this organization um, was consciously designed around building not only an idea of Negro literature, uh, but also a, a body of, of uh, a, a population of readers who were increasingly sophisticated uh, at, at not only their literacy, but also their literary ability. And what I mean by that is it really um, the critical thinking skills, um, the, uh, the, the, all the things that we associate with literary study that we today teach our, our, our students in, in class, um, close reading skills, analytical skills, all of those, it seems to me, were part of, um, of what uh, uh, literary practitioners during this moment were thinking about. Um, and they were thinking about how would the study of black literature be organized? How would the study of black literature take place? Um, and how would the study of, uh, of, of, of black lives, black history, you know, all these different sort of categories um, that we now think of as black studies, how would that take place? Um, so when you look ahead um, certainly to something like the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but even beyond that, um, I think that there are all kinds of ways in which this infrastructural work um, had lasting effects. Um, it, du Bois has this great line that he says, I think it's uh, in 1913, um, and I, I cite it in the book. He says, um, he talks about a moment, he talks about um, work that had not yet or been done. It's a, it's a really weird construction, but um, but it 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 perfectly captures this anticipation of later moments. Um, 
of, uh, of moments where, where writing, where writers, where readers, um, and where the importance of black literature generally would be recognized in ways that the constellation of writers, practitioners, publications that I look at only anticipate that sort of thing. Um, and Terrell herself, it seems to me, by saving her rejection letters, um, by continuing, even after she w- knew that her writing was not going to end up in the pages, that her short stories specifically were not going to end up in the pages of like Harper's Magazine, she continued to submit them to these same journals um, as a way to insist that her writing belonged there, that it should be published there. Um, and to show, to, to, to make an argument, to mount an argument with, um, with these editors, these white editors, um, that they should open up their pages to um, black writers and that they should be willing to, um, not to follow public opinion, but to create um, these forums, these to open up these venues of publication, um, and that certainly was done at a time that she recognized that she was not going to have success for her writing, but that future writers, future Black writers, um, might find a place for their writing in these journals um, because of her work. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Yeah, no, that's great. You know, um, I really liked your account there of the infrastructural work of this period. One of the images that, you know, really stuck in my mind while reading your book was the was the image of, you know, the sort of farm worker sort of resting at the end of each row and then sort of reading like a lesson in the newspaper or a book. Um, and that was contrasted with that famous image from Booker T. Washington's uh I want to say it's up from slavery where he's sort of describing it the saddest thing he's ever seen. It's like a boy in some like dirty home out in the middle of nowhere reading a French grammar book. Um, and so I guess what I'm curious about is if you could say a, a bit more about your concept of school, school books. I mean, that's, yes, school books. Yeah, school books. And, 
you know, what it means to actually do this infrastructural work, right? Like what it means in the 19th century to be thinking about, we want to sort of cultivate, you, you keep describing this as the move from literacy to a kind of literary culture. You know, what, what, what does that look like um, in the terms of the newspapers and some of the other materials uh, that you're looking at in your, in your volume? Um, so um, well, let me just uh, go backwards a little bit to give some context to what I'm going to say going forwards. Um, when I, uh, w- one thing that I think has struck uh, many, many scholars of Black uh, literary history and print culture is the extent to which we know a tremendous amount about readers in the North um, and um, and about black readers in the North um, and about black readers who are well-educated and, and privileged um, enough to have access to education. Um, But we know far less about readers in the South where there were fewer opportunities for education, uh, fewer opportunities for access to literary material. um, And, um, and, and certainly a, 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 a shorter history, um, a less dense history of literary interaction. So that's always been, uh, uh, for me, a problem. And in part, it's a problem because it was something I couldn't get at, I didn't get at in my first book. Um, so in this, in this book, I didn't set out to figure out, you know, where were um, readers from the South in all of this, um, in, in the equation. But I came across these books that were sold by subscription, um, that were essentially disregarded by Northern readers, um, but ha- but were sold in great quantities um, in the South and in the Midwest, um, and they were sold by subscription, which meant that um, they were sold by uh, agents who went door to door in order to um, essentially uh, find people willing to pay for a book that they only saw in a, it's in a very abbreviated form um, before they bought what would then be a complete book. So they saw a partial book. Um, and based on that, based on the binding, based on the 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 agent's enthusiasm for what the book contained based on pictures largely uh, they subscribed for a book and what it made me realize um, because uh, these books are chopped up versions of other books um, but what it made me realize was that they were windows into um, both you know how uh, black readers in the South or, or even, or, or, or black people in the South, whether they were actually literate or not, how they gained access to reading material, how they came to value books, um, how they came to a greater understanding of what, what reading was, um, and what it could do. Um, and, and part of what, I um, came to understand, came to have a much firmer grasp on is the extent to which, you know, we think of literacy, it's like you are either illiterate or you're literate. But, um, but, uh, but literacy was something that was practiced, something that 
that that was worked on, something that was extended um, over someone's whole lifetime. Um, it, it's still that way, right? It's still something that you know we we practice, and not something that we go from, you know, being illiterate to being literate. Um, and so, what I came to um, to understand was that these books, in many ways, were their own school. They were a place where um, black people could practice their literacy, where they could learn uh, um, uh, how reading might fit into their lives, um, and where they could make that movement from using literacy and reading material to get information to using reading material to come to better understandings of, you know, for instance, their own history and their own positioning um, there. And, and um, they could use um, these books to practice uh, getting a greater understanding of the kind of material they were reading and the kind of um, the, and also um, the ways that people had viewed them. Um, the ways that other writers had uh, described, had um, communicated uh, the position of Black people, their history, their value. Um, So that was one piece of it. But to understand them as school books, I had to really get outside of the way that we traditionally think of uh, education for Black people at the end of the 19th century, um, because we are consumed with uh, what we think we know, which is w- what scholars have largely talked about, um, the that divide between Booker T. Washington's perspective on and his valuing of industrial education, of learning trades, of Black people being um, restricted even to learning trades um, as a way to to in, ensure their economic viability, um, and W. E. B. Du Bois's notion of uh, the importance of higher education, um, and it, in many ways, again, um, uh, there there are plenty of scholars that have talked about what I call self education that have talked about um, the ways that Black people have ensured their own literacy, um, but to think of this as a major strain of education, of black education at the end of the 19th century um, is I think uh, is really important because it is, it is the way that you understand um, how insufficient both of these modes of education were Um, one uh, Booker T. Washington's higher education, because it was available to so few black people relatively speaking. The other, because it was so limited in the way, in, in, in what it, it, what it taught black people. Um, but these books and uh, a host of other, um, uh, I, I think, uh, forms of self-education, but these books um, did, uh, I argue two things. One is it extended literacy, the, the education of, of, of reading. Um, it offered forms of reading and texts for reading, but also um, advanced um, what I think of as like literary training. Um, and the other is that neither higher education nor industrial education were teaching black studies. 
in other words, the history of Black people in the world uh, in a global context, um, and also specifically the achievements of uh, of Black people in a global context, but also specifically in the United States. And these books, these books that I identify as school books, did both of those things. Um, and for a population that was was um, that we generally associate with. Um, with even at the turn from the 19th to the 20th century with high rates of illiteracy. Um, but these books offered a way for uh, readers to go from essentially reading pictures, reading the Ill, the kinds of things that illustrated these books to reading small bits of text, to reading, um, to reading larger bits of text um, with guidance from the subheadings and subtitles that the editors, the the authors put in those texts, to comparing texts, right, to reading texts by by uh, you know full texts by people who were um, well known in black leadership um, and um, and comparing, um, for instance, um, something Booker T. Washington said to something that Alexander Crummel said. Um, so it, 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 I think that, you know, this, this idea of thinking about, uh, or expanding our understanding of how black people were educated or how they educated themselves or, or, to, or to include how they educated themselves, even as late as the turn of the, um, of the 20th century, um, is really important. And I think it, it opens up, um, room for thinking about, for instance, uh, Elaine Locke's um, 1940s collections um, that he uh, designed specifically for working class people um, to to offer them something that resembled like a university or a, 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 a university curriculum, but designed for different populations. This offers a context for that. Um, which I think is 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 really important for helping us to better appreciate those later projects. Yeah, that, you know that was one of my favorite parts of your book was reading about you know the agent going door to door and reading this sort of script and thinking about you know the agent having to sort of strategize how he was going to get sort of a town full of poor people um, who maybe can't read well or maybe don't even own any books other than a Bible, how to get them interested in what it is he's selling and just having to meet the preacher first or the teachers first or whatever it is to get into that community and sell people books. Um, it's just like a really beautiful uh, part of your book because I, I just did not know that history. I didn't realize that there would be black, you know, door to door book salesmen, right? Like that's not even something that crossed my mind. Um, and so it's just really beautiful to also think about um, sort of cultivating a desire for books as material objects, that being something that's not only new to sort of black folks, but just sort of generally in the 19th century. Um, I thought yeah, and really, it's interesting yeah. that these books have been um, really devalued because um, what people have said is that, you know, they were, they, people bought them for show. Um, people just bought them to sit on the shelves. They never, you know, they weren't, they weren't even opened, but instead of, um, of, of thinking of that as a reason to dismiss these books, what is helpful is to really get at, you know, why did they value those books, even if they couldn't read them? And how did those books get into people's homes if, you know, if they, if they didn't value books? Um, and, um, and one of my favorite, uh, just my last thing on this, one of my favorite um, things that I just learned about 
the way these books were sold is that the publishers for these books, and you can't forget that these were commercial ventures. So they were, they, the point of the publisher was to make money. Um, but the publishers for these books, they watched, for instance, the, um, the cotton crop. And if the cotton crop was good, they went into those communities because they knew people had money. Um, and you know, it may not have been a lot of money and it certainly, I'm sure, you know, for our own contemporary standards wasn't, but, um, but, but the ways of selling these books is fascinating. Um, even, even as you acknowledge that part of the reason why people bought these was, was cause they thought they looked great. Um, with that the cover was, you know, gilded in some way that made it even more attractive. Yeah, no, that's great. Well, you know, we're ending down on time, but you know, I wanted to ask a question, you know, one of, one of the projects you said that you're, you're sort of engaging in, in this, volume is sort of thinking about definitions of authorship. And so you just brought that a little bit with your last comment, thinking that these books aren't really taken seriously. You know, there's not really sort of original authorship in them. You call, you name three types of, of, of authorship. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit of, about the last one, but all three is fine if you if you want to touch on them. But you named curata- curational, collective, and then managed construction. And I feel like we've talked a bit about the first two across this interview, but we haven't talked so much about Manage construction. So, could you say a bit about that? Yeah. So that brings me to one of my um, my uh, favorite uh, slash least favorite uh, chapters of the book. It is actually a favorite chapter, but it is the chapter that I was very reluctant to go into, and I went only because that's where the story went. Um, and that is a chapter on Booker T. Washington. And, um, and I say that, but in fact, the chapter is not on Booker T. Washington. It's really on T. Thomas Fortune, who I argue um, really at, around the turn of the century um, made it his um, business, made it his um, responsibility to manage the authorship of Booker T. Washington. Um, and I don't use, I think I use it once, um, but I use it to pull back from it. Um, the term ghostwriter, um, because, um, I use, I don't use it specifically because I think it, um, it offers us, uh, both a false, false sense of their relationship, but also it introduces a term that we think we know, um, in, 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 and that also, um, you know, a relationship that we don't have a lot of respect for. What I try and do is I really take apart what it meant for um, T. Thomas Fortune to both write for uh, Booker T. Washington, but also to manage the construction of his authorship, the construction of the image of his authorship. Um, And that included um, not only writing for him, but also editing his work advising him on what he should or shouldn't write topics. uh, And also in terms of um, um, things that he was asked to write, you know, should he write for that publication or even that specific editor? Um, Was it worth his time? Was it worth his effort? Um, And so what I try and get at is really what it meant to write for to work for, to, to construct the authorship of another person. And I make a distinction between authorship as like a public posture and um, writing as a embodied labor. Um, and I try and look at what that labor 
literally entailed. Um, and I also look at what that labor cost, um, because uh, Fortune was very, very, very clear on exactly what he felt his labor was worth as an author. I think um, money is one of the things that um, I was most fascinated by um, in that chapter. Um, but also I think it's become something I'm really interested in because I think we, we, um, we, we have ignored in some sense or under theorized um, the importance of, of money of cost um, in African-American literary history. Um, but the way that um, that fortune focused on money, the way that he was paid and underpaid, um, the way he was compensated um, in various ways, um, it becomes a, a really important part of the story of the relationship between Washington um, and fortune. Um, and I also think a lot about the way his own writing um, when I say suffered, the way that his the way his own aspirations for writing did not follow what he I think hoped would happen. I think he hoped if he constructed um, Booker T. Washington as a, an author, then it would give a certain prominence to black writing, and I think it did in terms of cementing Washington's leadership. Um, cementing his image as a leader, which uh, Fortune rightly, I think, uh, understood as something that would be really um, augmented by being seen as an author specifically of books. But I think he also wanted to make a center for Black literature um, and a center for black literature, which would really cement the idea of black literature um, and the prominence of black literature. Um, and, uh, and uh, you know, I, I would argue that in the long run, that certainly happened. But in the short run, in terms of uh, Fortune's own success with his own writing, he is very much like Terrell in that he had aspirations to be seen um, and, um, and in fact, worked on a novel, uh, poetry, all sorts of different forms of literature, but he didn't enjoy the same kind of publishing success that he earned for uh, Washington. And part of that, obviously, is because of Washington's prominence. Um, but, uh, but it's a complicated story, I think, um, and really helps to um, cement uh, the, the kinds of ways that um, even what counted as authorship, right? The various forms of authorship looked like in, uh, in, at the turn of the century. Yeah, that's really great. Um, well, to end, I'm just curious about, this is going to be our last question. I'm curious about, you know, overall, how you see the book just sort of fitting into the field of, of 19th century African-American literary study, how you see it being used in, in graduate classrooms and undergraduate classrooms, but also, I mean, what you would hope for it uh, in terms of ongoing conversations in the field? So I think one of the biggest um, interventions it makes is just in um, sort of reconceptualizing the idea of failure um, and what it means or the possibilities of looking at writers that, um, you know, by, by, by our own standards did not succeed. Um, I think that, you know, thinking about um, the ways that, quote unquote, failed writers and writing fits into or, or become how we might account for that in literary history broadly conceived um, is, uh, is a really 
um, it's, it's a really important question um, and one that's certainly not solved or um, entirely clarified by my work. But, um, but, I, but I hope um, it raises questions about the ways that, you know, about, about what counts as literary history, about how we go about um, um, uh, thinking and talking and, and writing about, um, about the literary history that, that we see. Um, so that's one, that's one thing. Um, I also hope it, it, it just in terms of, um, thinking about the various, um, uh, materials that are included in studies. Um, I think it's, it, it is, it, you know, we, we are ever increasing the kinds of things that we think of when we think of, um, again, what counts as literary history. And I, and I think that, you know, if we are, if, if we can move, continue to move away from thinking about only novels and poetry and maybe drama, you know, and, and the most obvious things, um, as components of literary history that will go a long way to, um, getting at the nuances of, um, of, of, you know, what, what we work with, what, what materials we value. Um, I also think, you know, um, anytime that we can um, work more closely with the archives that are available to us, um, in addition to um, building new archives, um, that's a plus. Um, and that um, finding ways to value um, various aspects of literary history that aren't only just claiming things as, you know, new additions to a canon of African-American literature, uh, you know, that I think that, um, you know, getting away from that as the only um, or even the prime um, objective of recovery work, of what we call recovery work, um, uh, it, it, is, uh, is, it presents a valuable example for, um, for new scholars on how they might work with the archives. Um, you know, uh, one thing that people have asked me just recently is, um, you know, how I get from my work in the archives, like, you know, all the riches that the archives have to offer to the story, you know, the story that you actually tell, like, you know, in, in some ways the final book, but, but how do you see the narrative in it all? And I think that for me, that's been really uh, thinking back over, I mean, I don't know how you teach that. Um, and, but to acknowledge the, the amount of time that that takes, um, the, the, the difficulty of doing that, I think, for students um, is, is also really important um, because I think that's the trick, right? We have, there are amazing archival researchers, but to be able to, um, to, to pull that story out, right, and to weed down what you have to the story that you can see, um, that's a trick, um, and it's a trick I should just say that that is um, co- that that is not done in solitude, right? I mean, you do it through all the friends and colleagues that that read your work and they they help you suss out what's most important. Um, but I think you know to find examples of how that's done is is sort of you know a crucial stage in student life. Yeah, I will say, you know, I thought that was one of the most beautiful aspects of your, of your book, just all these stories that I did not know about African-American literature. Well, thank you for being with me um, here today. You know, it's been great to be in conversation with you about this book. And I really hope and encourage everyone to go out and to buy Elizabeth McHenry's To Make Negro Literature, Writing Literary, pra- Writing Literary Practice and African-American Authorship. Thank you.
Thank you.